suppose you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Probably no time of the year that uh, I am more appreciative of Sunday worship gatherings than now. Just because of how crazy we make ourselves at Christmas, right? I mean, our lives are busy, crazy enough. And then we get to this time of the year and we start just adding stuff to our life. We're not really taking away anything. We start adding uh, gift buying and shopping trips and family get-togethers and parties and uh, making of this and making of that and going here and going there. And, and it's all good. It's all done in the name of Jesus, right? It's all supposed to be fun. It's all supposed to be worshipful to Him. But we're exhausted. We're tired. And uh, we're joyful and celebrant, but it's like we're stumbling and bumbling to the next fun thing that we get to do. And so to be able to come together with people that, that love each other and just stop. And just be still. And just come together and allow ourselves to turn our hearts and our minds to Jesus. To, to check ourselves in some way. To make sure that everything that we're doing is because of Him. Flowing out of our worship and our adoration for Him. But then just to enjoy being together as we check ourselves, as we sing about Him and focus on Him and, and allow our hearts to once again be captivated by the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you over the next hour or so that we're still here, maybe a little bit over an hour or two, um, just, just allow your mind to quit chasing stuff, right? I mean, even last night I'm finishing the sermon and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Here's what I got to do Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before Thursday and Friday. And just, God, help me to, to focus on what's most important. And right now, what's most important is to hear the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, speak to your heart. What do you need? How does Jesus need to, to minister to you, to serve you, to love you this morning? And so let's do that together. We've been doing that through this Advent series, helping us as a family of servant missionaries turn our hearts and minds to Christ. Advent simply means coming, and so we... Speak of the first advent of Christ. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We're longing and looking forward to the, the second advent of Christ. He's still coming. We're waiting for him to come. Jesse got us started two weeks ago by helping us to see that uh, the promise was made because we are sinful, because of sin. We have sin in us. We have sin in creation. Because of sin, they, they needed someone to come. We needed a rescuer. We needed someone to come and fix the problem of sin. And so Kendrick walked through last week who that someone was. That that someone is Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Rescuer. Jesus is and was the only one like Him. Truly God, truly man. Even from the earliest records of His existence as a human being on earth, something was different. Angels showing up and singing, shepherds coming and worshiping. That's not a typical night in labor and delivery. Something was different about this baby. And we see it from the very beginning of His story. And what we know from Scripture is this. There's no one like Jesus that Christianity is not a religion of rules to keep, that Christianity is a relationship with a person. And this person is Christ. Christianity rises and falls on Jesus. He is incomparable. There's not a metaphor, an analogy, or anything that does justice to describe or paint a picture of who Jesus is. He's incomparable. We have thousands of words in the scriptures to, to tell us who Jesus is. We've written how many songs to describe who Jesus is, how many poems, how many books, and they still don't do justice to who he is. There's nobody like him. 
And so today, let's look at the work that he came to do. Why the promise was made, how he kept his promise by coming, and then what is the work that he came to do, the promise realized. There are bad ideas about why Jesus came. Some of these include what? You can say something. What are some of the bad ideas about the purpose of Jesus' coming? To show us how to live. That's it. He's going to give us a rule book. We just follow the rules. Give us a guidebook. Just follow the guidebook. To make us healthy, wealthy, and prosperous? That's why he came. And, and, and now let's, let's understand. Like there's, there's going to be a day where we're not going to get sick again, guys. There's going to be a day where we inherit the earth. We rule with Christ over all of creation. We, we will be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. The problem is to expect it now. That's the problem with those TV preachers. There's no guarantee that it comes now. One day we will inherit all of that, but, but not now. Other bad reasons why Jesus came to, to make you comfortable, to make us happy, to fulfill our dreams, our hopes, and our desires. Um, Jesus came to, uh, not, not to, um, to set us free from the sickness and the death that, that are part of the curse on earth. Um, but, but all those ideas are false ideas. Jesus did not come for you, you alone. Jesus came for a people, right? A body. And so there's a lot of ways to talk about the purpose of the first advent. Lots of scriptures we could walk through. Uh, what I want to do this morning is walk through a few, not in any way an exhaustive list, just kind of where the Spirit's been drawing my heart over the last few weeks, and trusting that He can do the same for, for all of us this morning, you know, that all of us can worship Jesus as we focus on these passages this morning. So first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Christ came in poverty to make us rich and generous with His grace. Christ came in poverty to make us rich and generous with His grace. Uh, we're going to focus on verse 9, but I want you to see the context. So beginning in verse 1, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." Paul is urging this Corinthian church who excel in many things, according to verse 7. They excel in faith, they excel in speech, they excel in knowledge, but he, he wants them to also excel in what? Giving. He's, he's raising an offering among the Macedonian churches, so think Philippi, Thessalonica, the Bereans. He's raising an offering 
for the saints who are going through a hard time in Jerusalem to bring back to them to help their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's, he's telling the Corinthians, look, this is what I experienced in Macedonia. These people are poor. But they didn't use that as an excuse. Willingly, on their own, after giving themselves first to the Lord, they gave generously for the saints back in Jerusalem. So you Corinthians, who excel in all these things, you also excel in demonstrating your love for these saints in giving to help them out. And what is the motivation behind all this? Why would they do this? Not because Paul commanded them. He says, I don't command you to do this. I'm encouraging you to examine your heart, to see your love for Jesus, to see your love for your fellow brothers and sisters of Christ. But, but why should they do this? Verse 8 tells us, verse 9, For you know by the grace, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet your, for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus left his exalted station in heaven, where his worship was constant, where his adoration was constant, came from heaven to earth, wrapped himself in the mortal flesh of a human body with all the limitations of humanity, put himself in the home, not of a king, but of a carpenter. Despite what TV preachers may say, Jesus did not grow up wealthy. When Mary and Joseph came to the temple when he was eight days old to offer their customary gift at the temple, they brought the offering of the poorest of the poor, two birds, not the offering of the wealthy. But Jesus came in this state, still God in every way, subjecting his divine nature to the limitations of human nature, veiling, covering up his glory, covering it in flesh so that he looked like a common, ordinary man. There was nothing about his appearance that caused people to say, well, of course he's God. Just look at him. Look at his square jaw or his high cheekbone or his white skin or his feathered hair or his tall stature or his British accent. Of course he's God. He's attractive. He's good to look at. According to archaeological finds of that area, the average height of a man in the first century was five feet tall. You ever think about Jesus as five feet tall? And now, now we see in the Bible Jesus in his glorified state, the book of Revelation. John, who knew Jesus as well as anyone who ever walked the face of the earth, who was known as a disciple who would lay his head on the, the bosom of Jesus, the breast, the chest of Jesus, John sees the glorified Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and falls before him as the one who is dead. We see Jesus in Revelation 19 as the returning, conquering king and warrior, among whom all people of all nations will bow down before. That's the second advent. That's, we're waiting for that. The first advent, he didn't look like that. Unless from time to time he chose to pull back the veil like he did, for instance, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he, he allowed his glory to be seen when he was visiting with Moses and Elijah. And Peter said, what? Man, I'm not leaving. We're building three tabernacles. We're staying right here. We're, we're never leaving this mountain. It's that good. But it wasn't time for that. Jesus came, endured this humiliation so that we would become rich. Not a reference to rich in money, but rich in grace, rich in spiritual blessing, rich in the same way Jesus was rich in heaven before he came to earth. And then receiving those overwhelming spiritual blessings, becoming rich in God's grace, that's what leads us to give of ourselves for the benefit of others. These, these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, are all about this offering that Paul's trying to raise. And he's, he's after more than just money from these believers to these believers. He's after their hearts, which is why he points out they gave themselves first to the Lord. 
So we have this, this offering basket every Sunday on the communion table. I think we've done this long enough. Everybody knows what this is for. After we've heard the word proclaimed, we respond in worship. And part of worship is sharing in this meal together, communion. But part of it is responding and giving of tithes and offerings uh, to the Lord. Uh, I don't know if we'll always do it like this. It's working for now. Uh, hopefully one day we'll have where you can give online, uh, possibly. Uh, but for now it seems to work, even though we usually forget to mention it. But uh, just because we don't mention it or make a big deal about it or talk about it very much, don't hear that and think that we don't think it's an essential part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Right? And we're a college with a large percentage of our, 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 we're our church with a large percentage of our, our, of our members are college students. So college students don't have any money, so we don't even talk about giving because they don't have anything to give. Um, but, but don't hear us say that, well, just because our people don't have a lot, that giving is not an important part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a tangible part of demonstrating your faith and trust in your Father in Heaven that He will provide for all of your needs. Jesus talked about money and possessions as much as anything else. How to handle them, how to view them, how to use them. One of the truest indicators of where your heart is is what you do with your money and your time. It's one of the truest indicators of where your heart is. Where, what do you treasure? What do you value? Are you laying up treasures on earth? Or are you laying up treasures in heaven? All through the Bible, there's warnings against chasing money, letting money become a god. And that doesn't mean that only those who are rich are the people who are chasing after money. Greed does not know an income bracket. The Bible admonishes us not to live... Not only chasing after money, letting money and possessions be our idol, but not to live in fear and anxiety over having enough money. To know that you have a Father in Heaven who cares about His kids, who takes care of all your needs. That you'll always have food to eat, you'll always have a place to live, you'll always have clothes on your back, because as you're seeking your Father and not chasing those things that the Gentiles are chasing, Matthew 6 tells us, as we're seeking Him, His righteousness, His kingdom, your Father will what? Do do what? Add all these things to you. Give you whatever you need to know Him, to follow Him, to do what He's called and created you to do. So part of how God supplies our needs is He gives us skills, abilities, and desires to work, to get a job, to earn an income. So that that we, uh, like Paul said in Ephesians 4.28, we're not stealing from others, robbing from others, but we're letting the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, do honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Isn't that interesting? Paul makes a connection between hard work and generosity. Not stealing, but work hard so you can help others. So we give an an offering to the Lord as a way of demonstrating that money is not our God, that our offering is according to what God has given us, that it's given freely, cheerfully as an act of worship, that's given in secret. So we're not trying to impress people with how much we give. Um, One common question is this, do, do I have to give 10%? Wait, you don't have to give anything. This is not a bill. If you don't tie to the crossing church, we're not going to send you to a collection agency. You know, Jesse's six months behind on his ties. Can you somehow contact him and let him know his credit rating is going down? The question is never what do you have to give, but what in light of what God has given you in Jesus Christ, what do you get to return to Him as a way of saying thanks, as a way of worship that I can give cheerfully, liberally, willingly? And as a demonstration of faith and trust in Him. What, what do you get to give that is an act of worship and is an act of trust? 
That's the question we should ask. 10% is a great starting point. 10% did not come from the law. 10% predates the law, going back to Genesis chapter 14. But for some, 10% is not enough. Because it's not, it's not really hard to give 10%. For others who might be in a financial crisis or a difficult time, 10% might be too much for a season. But what can you give to the Lord that demonstrates worship and trust? What can you willfully, cheerfully, worshipfully give? And what can you give that shows trust? Like, like it, should, it should be a common thing as you look at your budget and you look at what you give. It should be a common thing for you to look at that number and say, man, gosh, I could do a whole lot of things with that, that much money. If I, if I quit giving that as a, as, a, as a worshipful gift and offering, I could buy this, I could buy this, I could buy this. But because I love Jesus, because of everything he's given me, I'm going to continue to give this as, as a gift of sacrifice to him. Like we should, it shouldn't just be like paying your water bill. Just, oh, you've got to pay it. It doesn't really hurt me. It's got to come out. There should be some, some check in our, our spirit because it's sacrificial. It's an act of trust knowing that your father will take care of you. You know your father in heaven cares for you. You know your father in heaven cares for your needs. You know your father in heaven will not only provide what you need to do what he's called you to do, but at times he will overwhelm you with how good and generous he is to you. I'm terrible at being transparent about these kinds of things, about God's generosity toward us personally, mainly because I don't want to sound like a TV preacher. So here's what God's done for me. If you do these things, God will do it for you, right? Um, but also because I'm prideful, and I don't want to appear like I have a need, and that's sin. That's sinful. But our family, I'll, I'll share this with you because your family, and Jennifer and I would love to share more with anyone who, who wants to know more. But uh, 13 months ago, we were seriously asking the question, how are we going to do Christmas? Like, I don't know how we're going to make this work. And 13 months later, not only did God take care of that pretty insignificant thing, we have a son and a fully paid for adoption. What? Wasn't even on our radar 13 months ago. And now, if you had told me 13 months ago, uh, God's about to do this, I'd be like, no, whatever. I guess he could. And he did it. Um. No one uh, here who knows the story behind how that happened is in any way impressed with me and Jennifer, right? I mean, we, we felt like we were just kind of watching it happen to us. God just said, I've got this child who's been born. He's going to be a Hawthorne, so I've got to find a way to get him into this home. And boop, here, here's how it's going to happen. And it happened, right? Um, but we want the Crossing Church to be, to be a people who are filled with testimonies year after year of God's faithfulness and generosity toward them, who can say, I can take steps of faith and obedience and trust in my Father because I know He's going to give me what I need to do what He's called me to do. And we have these stories circulating among our people. Hey, remember when that happened to them? Remember when they walked through that? Remember when they lost their job and God took care of them? Remember how He provided during that medical crisis? Remember how He provided for that adoption? 
Just story after story after story. And, and it doesn't have to be big things. It can be small things. God just was faithful to provide as we walked it out year after year after year. Why? Because Jesus has been generous toward us. And so we can be generous with each other. Um, what do we do with what you give to the Crossing Church? I put a sheet on the back table uh, that explains what we have received, what we have on hand, what we plan to do with what you give in 2016. We're going to update that each quarter so that you can always know. We want to be transparent, we want to be open, we want to be, uh, have a, a, an open book for our people to know uh, what we do with what you give. Uh, if you have any questions about any of that, don't hesitate to get in touch with me, Scott or Kendrick, and we'll walk you through uh, the plan. But in the first advent, we have Jesus leaving the riches of heaven, embracing the poverty of humanity so that we could enjoy the riches of Christ and his grace and then share that with others. Secondly, Jesus came to crush sin and give life. If you would turn to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, Jesus came to crush sin and give life. So much here, uh, but... Instead of digging down into all the depths of it, which probably is about 10 sermons for John Piper, we're just going to kind of get the big picture. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore... Reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. And then skipping down to verse 23, well-known verse, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the big picture is, we are sinners by nature, and because we're sinners, verse 23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. Now we understand wages. You, you go to work, you put in your hours, at the end of that work week, you get a check for the amount of hours that you work, right? Nobody sits down if they get paid by their boss and sends them a thank you note for being so generous with their paycheck that week. I worked it, I earned it, we agreed to this wage when we signed the contract for me to work here, so I've earned it, you pay me, you owe me. In fact, when I get paid by hospice, I don't, I don't write a thank you note to the hospice company saying, you've been so generous to me, thank you so much for paying me what I've earned. I actually look for the paycheck to see what mistakes they've made, because they often make mistakes. And then I go to my boss and say, look, they shorted me two hours, can you get that fixed? And she's like, sure, it happens all the time. We, we understand wages and work, those 
those are wages. And so because we are sinners, we have earned the wages of our sins, which is death. All we deserve is death. Like we should say this to our kids every single day. All you deserve today is death. You don't deserve another meal, another set of clothes, another hour on your device, another Netflix show. You don't deserve any more comfort or security. All you have earned, child of mine, is death. All I have earned as your father is death. Like we should say before we open presents on Christmas morning. None of us earn these gifts. None of us deserve these gifts. All we deserve is hell. I don't think we can say that enough. Because that's what our sins have earned us. And Jesus came and made himself a propitiation for our sins, which means he absorbed God's wrath for the sins, for our sins for us. He stood in our place. He died for our sins so we would not have to die. He paid the price for our sins that we would not have to pay the price for those sins. But not only that, this, that alone is amazing and worthy of devotion and worship. Not only that, but then he gives us life. He doesn't just absolve us of our sin and the guilt of our sin and absolves us of the wrath of God, but then he gives us life, resurrected life, to go and enjoy life in him, new life, freedom in him. So it's not that we're just not guilty, but now we belong. We're adopted as sons and daughters of him. The Spirit of God comes and dwells us and we become new people. It's, it's kind of like the, the old Charlie and Chocolate Factory movie, the good one, the one from the 70s, where Charlie goes through the chocolate factory and there's a lot of tests, right? And the everlasting gobstopper that Mr. Snugglesworth wanted to try and trick them with, but he really worked for Charlie, uh, I mean, uh, Willy Wonka. Um, and so Charlie gets to the end of the test, and not only did he not fail the test because he didn't get taken away like the other four kids, but he gets to the chocolate factory. He gets a new life. He gets to have a new existence. Uh, a better example, a biblical example, John chapter 8, a woman was caught in the act of adultery. He, she is brought before Jesus by the religious leaders for him to determine what should be done because the law says a woman caught in the act of adultery should be stoned, right? And they're picking up stones, they're ready to go to town. Well, Jesus knowing, because he's God, he knows their motivations, he knows what they're up to, they're trying to trick him. He begins to, to kneel down and write something in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote in the dirt. It's not important what he wrote in the dirt. We'll never know unless God chooses to reveal what he wrote in the dirt to us. Then he stood up and he, and he said, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he continued to write in the dirt. And then the men began to drop their stones because they knew that they were had. Right? The woman was caught in the act of adultery. Where was the guy at? Right? He should have been out there too. He probably was standing among them as one of the accusers of the woman. But nevertheless... They leave, they drop their stones, they go away, and then Jesus looks at her and says, where are your accusers? And she says, they've gone. And then Jesus says this, neither do I condemn you. And then what did he say? Go and sin no more. Not only are you not under condemnation, but I as the only one who has the right to condemn you, I as the only one who has no sin, I don't condemn you. Now go live a new life. Go and sin no more. How are you experiencing and enjoying that freedom in your life right now? We talk about our depravity. We talk about our sinfulness, how we need the gospel every day, and all of that 
is true. Guys, it's also true that we don't have to sin. We don't have to sin. We can say no to sin. We don't have to live enslaved to sin. We can't be a people who believe that sinning is so inevitable that we don't fight. That we just give in and go along with our natural inclinations and desires. Well, I'm just going to keep sinning, so I'll just keep sinning and keep repenting. Maybe your struggle with sin is because your repentance is not genuine. Because you know in your heart you're just checking a box. You're spewing, you're vomiting the gospel out, you're, you're, you're throwing this repentance out. It's not real. You're just checking the box so you can go right back to sinning. Maybe that's why your struggle with sin continues to remain. We don't teach, we don't believe the Bible teaches sinless perfectionism. We will continue to sin, but the Bible also teaches there is always a way out to every temptation to sin. And while we continue to sin, as long as we're in this sinful flesh and this sinful world, that doesn't mean our battle with sin is stagnant and we live a defeated life. A maturing follower of Jesus will be able to look back over the years and say, yes, I am still a sinner. I need the gospel daily, but let me also show you the notches in my belt that Jesus has given me over this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin. Because there's been victories. There's been times when I faced a temptation by his grace. Jesus gave me everything I needed to say no to that temptation. Jesus came to crush sin in us and give us life. So live, Christian. Live. Show in your life that there's freedom from sin. That you're not enslaved to sin. That there's new life because Jesus is in you and is coming out of you in your actions and your attitudes and behaviors. Then we have a very unique message to declare to our neighbors and our families and our co-workers in our city. A people who are not enslaved to sin. A people who have Christ's life coming through them. A message that we can declare here. A message that we declare in a place maybe like Nicaragua. Abigail and I were down there two weeks ago. We, we kind of tagged along with two of the churches who go down there yearly to love on the people in Nicaragua and we gave away essentially Christmas gifts, beans and rice and clothes and toys and, and candy and these sorts of things to very poor people. And we had the opportunity to tell them, we are not your saviors. They call us gringos. The gringos are not, have not come to save you. Um, in fact, we got to play soccer one day with, with some of the kids. And so it was the gringos versus the nickas. That's what they call themselves. And it did not go well. But these, these gifts are not your salvation. The beans and rice, you're going to eat it. It's going to be gone. The toys are going to break and wear out. The clothes are going to wear out. You're no longer going to be able to wear them. But these gifts we're bringing to you are intended to point you to a greater gift. These small temporary gifts point you to a, to a well that never runs dry, to a meal that never runs out, is always good, to a friend who will never leave you nor forsake you. And maybe one day God will open a door for, for us as a crossing church to return and be a part of disciple making and church planning in Nicaragua. Or it could be a place like China. Um, on January the 6th, we're going to do something a little different as a church family. We're going to be up here. So Wednesday night, we're going to meet up here. Um, an IMB missionary that I've worked with before um, in Asia is going to be here with a local missionary that she works with over there. Um, 
Don't want to be too open about where she's at. It's something we just need to, we just need to say Asia. Um, but uh, she's going to be here to talk about her work. So we'll be here as a crossing church. There'll be some other people from other churches who are going to be here that night. But she wants to not only talk about what God's doing and how he's using her in that part of Asia, but how we might could be a part of that and partner with her. Maybe God opens the door for us there to share this good news about forgiveness and life in Christ. Maybe God opens the door for us in Germany where we already support Todd and Tara Thomas and their work among the Turkish Muslims. Todd's dying for some of us to come over there and start exploring what that might look like. Or maybe it's a partnership somewhere else. It definitely is in Monroe, Western Monroe, all the time. Right? In our neighborhoods, at ULM, at Jack Hayes, at the Oaks, at Project 41, the other places the Spirit of God leads us to go on mission to declare the forgiveness of God that's available through Christ and the life that Christ has come to give us. This is also why Jesus came. To forgive us of our sins. To crush sin. To give us life. And then to send us to the nations with this message. And then thirdly, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is a direct quote out of scripture. Mark chapter 10 verse 43 says... But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. This was given in the context of his disciples arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who would sit at his right hand? And Jesus simply says, guys, that's not how it works in my kingdom. That's how it works among the Gentiles. Whoever is great is whoever is served. But in my kingdom, whoever is great is whoever serves. Because this is who I am. And you have my life inside of you. You're going to reflect this life amongst you. Who takes the initiative for the good of others and not the good of themselves? You see, the purpose of the first advent of Jesus was that he would suffer, serve, and die. He's the only baby ever born on the face of the earth whose purpose in life was to die. The only baby who's ever been born whose purpose was to die. He was still a king. He was still a savior. He was still a victor. He was still a Messiah. But the victory would not come through the sword, but it would come through the cross. Him being crushed like a criminal. And it was always the plan. It's alluded to from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, where the, the serpent, as the seed of the woman, crushes the head of the serpent. The serpent strikes its heel. That's an allusion to the cross. It's more clear in passages like Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. You also see it in the birth narratives like Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 35. Uh, Mary and Joseph bring eight-day-old Jesus into the temple, and they have these really incredible encounters, first with this old man named Simeon, who was devout, a follower of God, and the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon he would not die until he saw the Messiah. In walks this young, poor family with an eight-day-old baby. He doesn't have a, a lightning bolt on his head like Harry Potter where you knew he was special. He's just a baby. And he knows this is the one. There's no way he knows that apart from the Spirit of God. It wasn't glowing or anything like that. The same way we look at the story of Jesus, because we don't see Jesus, the only way we know this is true, this is life, this is real, is if the Spirit of God reveals it to us. And we believe. Just like Simeon believed. 
And so Simeon walks up to this family. Yeah, it's amazing. He walks up to this family and says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his, Jesus' father and his mother, marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, Mary, this is going to hurt. Something's going to happen to him. Something's coming through him. It's going to hurt you too. This is always the plan. We rebelled, we sinned, we deserve death unless someone would die in our place who fulfills the requirements for a perfect sacrifice before a holy and righteous God. But it also identifies with us because we're human. Only he who met this criteria could die in our place and satisfy the wrath of God and he alone is the one who meets the criteria. Jesus alone was holy and perfect. Jesus alone was, was also one of us. And so he came to bring victory, but it would be victory through suffering and service and sacrifice. If you've been reading through the Advent devotional uh, by John Piper, The Dawning of Indestructible Joy, then on December 17th you read, you read this. This is part of what he wrote about this particular verse. What a horrendous mistake it would be if we heard Jesus' call to be the servant of all, in verse 44, as a call to serve him. It is not. It is a call to learn how to be served by him. Don't miss this. This is the heart of Christianity. This is what sets our faith off from all of the major religions. Our God does not need our service. Acts 17 tells us that. God doesn't need us. The plan of God does not rise or fall based on our faithfulness. Nor is he glorified by recruits who want to help him out. Our God is so full and so self-sufficient and overflowing in power and life and joy that he glorifies himself by serving us. And then he goes on to explain how every command that God gives us, Jesus comes to serve us by enabling us to obey those commands. It's part of how he serves us. So he had this discussion as a family that night. So, so what does obedience look like in your life? You know, throughout you know, working hard at school and doing what mom and dad say and use, making good use of our time and not living in fear but in faith and those sorts of things. Trusting God in all things. Okay, whatever obedience looks like for you, Know this, Jesus serves you by coming alongside of you and filling you, enabling you to obey whatever he's commanded you to obey. He's not up there just throwing out rules and saying, do your best. He's coming down, serving us by saying, here's what I expect and here's everything you need to do it. I'm going to enable it in you. In fact, apart from me, John 15, you can do nothing. You, you can't obey these things. This is why John would tell us in 1 John 5 that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not burdensome because he enables us to do them. He's not placing a heavier weight on us. Even though he intensifies the law, intensifies the commands of God in the Gospels, the weight is not heavier because we have the Spirit of God, the presence of Christ in us to obey them. 
This is amazing that God would do this. And so I ask you this morning, what does obedience look like in your life? What does obedience look like in your life? Like, if, if you're like me, I, I mean, I could, I could just walk you through this description. Like, this is, what, this is what I think my life looks like when I am captivated by the gospel. When my heart is settled on Jesus. When I'm motivated properly. This is what I think my life looks like. And then I see the reality of my life every day that doesn't, doesn't measure up to that. Like I, don't, I don't get there all the time. And so what, is, what does your life look like? Maybe it's along the lines of giving and generosity and trust and faith that we talked about earlier. Maybe you're struggling to give it all. You just don't see biblically why you need to. Maybe you're struggling to give cheerfully. It's a burden. It's a drudgery. Maybe you're struggling to give sacrificially. You're just trying to get by. Maybe your struggles with sin. I mean, I should say there's, there's definitely a struggle with sin in your life, but what is it? Is it a sin that you keep chasing and giving into because of the temporary joy and pleasure that it brings? It's more satisfying in that moment than the fuller, deeper, more lasting satisfaction that is Jesus? Maybe it's a sin of omission where you know God's calling you to do these things, these good, righteous, holy works, and you keep just putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. Maybe you struggle to serve for the good of others. Your life's just about you. Your life is just about you. Your happiness, your joy, your pleasure, and everyone just kind of exists in your world to make you happy, to do what you want them to do. And you're so consumed with yourself that you don't even see others and how you can serve them. Or, or something else, just, just know this. Whatever God is calling you to, Jesus came to serve you and give you everything you need to say yes to God and say no to sin. Everything. I mean, maybe the call this morning is for you to trust in Jesus as your Savior. Like you realize, sitting here listening to this, you're... You've never truly become a new person. You've never experienced full life in Christ, the, the new life that Christ came to give. And so this morning, the call for you is to admit your sin or repent of your sins and trust in Jesus truly for the first time and come alive in Him. The salvation that Jesus, even the salvation that Jesus wants you to have, He comes and gives you everything you need to believe and have faith and trust in Him. Look to Him. Believe Him. Trust in Him. Be captivated by Him. Enjoy Him. We're going to, in a few moments, um, I'm going to pray, and then uh, Justin's going to come and read a passage of Scripture. And then you're going to have a time to just reflect. Just, just listen to the Spirit of God. What is He saying to you? And um, whatever sins He reveals and exposes, repent of those sins, believe in the gospel once again. And then um, when you're ready, you can come and receive the, the bread and dip it in the, the cup. And we'll share in this, this meal that is a picture of Christ to us, a picture of his sacrifice, a picture of his shed blood, a picture of him serving us so that we could be with him, so that we, we like, want Jesus to come again. We can't wait for Jesus in the second advent. Let, let it happen today, like right now. That'd be great.
A lot of people don't look forward to that. And so um, let me pray for you as we move forward. Father, so thankful for your grace. So thankful for your son. So thankful for Jesus. In the midst of all the lights and the gifts and the parties and the food and the family get-togethers, it's really about him. And so I pray that this time we've spent focusing on him and his work will, will bear in us the fruit of worship this week. That even as we're busy and as we're tired and we're, we're trying to get it all done, that there will be moments where our heart, our mind, just worships Jesus. is captivated by him, loves him. That that overflows beyond ourselves to those that we live with, to those that we do life with. Father, so, so that more and more we are that people. We are that people that are just, um, just captivated by Jesus. We can't get enough of him. We, we talk about him. We enjoy him. We um, share the experiences that he's given us with others. Invite others into this life. Just make us that people more and more. So that your grace, your glory would be seen in our city and to the nations. Uh, speak, move in our midst as only you can. Do what only you can do so that you get all the glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.